Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And our special guest, and actually re-guest, is Father Gary Sellen from the seminary. If you remember a month or so ago, a couple months ago, he spoke on celibacy. But we're going to talk today about angels and demons. And I think it's a topic a lot of people find very interesting. And uh, I'm looking forward to finding out more myself. So thanks for coming, Father. Appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome, Deacon. Thanks for having me again. Uh so what got you interested in studying angels and demons? It was initially a religious community I belonged to for six years. Okay. So I went to Fatima in the early 80s, and I met these priests that were just absolutely fascinating. They were kind of like the rambles of the spiritual life. They wore this black habit. And when they were from Germany, they had that very serious uh, – from that part of Germany, very Catholic, took the sacramental life very seriously. But they had a particular interest in the angels. And uh, when I joined, we would study and pray much to the angels and found out more about guardian angels. And I said, wow, there's a lot here that I did not know. I remember growing up praying the guardian angel prayer. Right. At angel God, my guardian dear, to whom God love commits me here, ever this day be at my side, to light, to guard, to rule and guide, amen. And that stayed with me all these years. And then I found out, well, there's a lot, even in that prayer, what our guardian angels do for us. So then I was in the order for six years, and God called me out, and he called me here to Denver, where I finished my studies. It was ordained. And then all those years had the desire to study more. So it's been more just a, a side project. Okay. But a side project that's, in a sense, central, because, for example, every Sunday when we pray the creed, we we profess our faith in things visible and invisible. And much to my delight when I studied more in the Catechism and other Catholic writings that were affirming our belief in visible things, material things, but the invisible refers primarily to the angels. That God uh, created both uh, material things and the spirit world, which are angels. So they must be all around us. Yeah. So they're not only they're not only invisible, and but their mission is to be messengers and protect us, right? They have kind of a yes. double mission. Yes, very much. And one thing I would like to speak about yeah. is about how, first of all, how we know angels exist. Yeah. And we know certainly as baptized Catholics, because it's part of our, our faith, and as I'd mentioned just in the creed, we affirm our belief in things visible and invisible. And also in Genesis, a very rich and ancient tradition comes from the church fathers, the early bishop theologians of the church. When you read Genesis 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, so we think they're invisible and visible, heavens and earth. Right. The earth was a formless wasteland and darkness covered the abyss while a mighty wind swept over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw how good the light was and separated the light from the darkness. God, ca God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Thus evening came and morning followed the first day. And the first understanding, and which is part of our, our Catholic understanding, is that certainly would be light that we see. And that's what some great saints such as Bonaventure, uh, St. Basil, uh, teach. But also there's a spiritual meaning to that, that when God said, let there be light, that was the creation of the angel. In fact, uh, St. Augustine says, when you read those words, let there be light, that was the angelic 
world being created in an instant. The very first act of God was to create the angelic realms. And then we'll talk in several minutes about where the darkness comes from, but when God uh, separates the light from the darkness, that was the original revolt uh, in heaven, Revelation 12, where Lucifer and his angels uh, revolted against God, and then St. Michael took up the sword. So that separation from darkness from light was this, the trial of the angels at the beginning of the time in which those who said yes to God and his plan were confirmed in light, our angels, good angels, our guardian angels, the whole nine choirs, and those that became dark are the demons. So there's a double meaning to that, mm-hmm. to that yes. passage out of Genesis. Yes, very much so. And it's got the uh, foundation of uh, the teaching of the church. And it has been uh, in Catholic uh, dogmatic theology and the Fourth Council, Lateran Council in about the 1200s did define dogmatically that angels are persons, are personal creatures that exist. And then our catechism has a, uh, a definition of angels as spiritual, personal, and immortal creatures. But to complement that, Deacon, for what we understand by faith, there's also what we could know by reason. So let's just think now of someone who is not a Christian, and they're looking around the world and saying, is it reasonable to think that there's something else than what we see? So there's this philosopher called Arthur Lovejoy, I think he wrote this book in the 1970s, around then, called The Great Chain of Being. And it's very fascinating kind of way to imagine this. If we start with the very lowest forms of matter is like rocks. And rocks are not alive, meaning they do not grow, they don't take in nutrition, they don't multiply. You don't have like a father and a mother rock and little pebbles <laughs> just coming out like uh, like a uh, litter of kittens. Uh, you just never, have, I'll never think of rocks the same, Father. No, thank you. Well, I remember back in the 80s, you had like pet rocks. People yeah, I do rock. remember that. People actually spent money on those, yes. Yeah, somebody <laughs> made a lot of money yeah. off of the pet rocks. So rocks are rocks, and the, the changes that we'll have will probably through erosion and we know from lava and stuff like that. But when you get into the lowest life forms, like cells and amoebas, a bacteria, you have a principle of something moving itself and multiplying. And then we go up to, uh, uh, from like germs and that, that molecular, we get into plant life. And with plant life, you have just very basic you know, things we see in our garden, uh, various uh, varieties. And then there's that type of uh, plant. I remember growing up where my brothers and I were fascinated. It was called the Venus flytrap. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. you'd... Couldn't wait till a fly went in there. Yeah, so yeah. we fed it ours with hamburger and basically fed it to death, and it died after about <laughs> two weeks. So it was this, a little gluttonous, was it? Huh? Yeah, well, okay. we promoted that vice, uh, okay. this, this plant. <laughs> but there was also the mimosa, a uh, little plant that you would touch it, and then it would curl up. Uh, and that was a fascinating thing. So there you get a type of plant that's starting to stick its head into the animal life because it, now it actually moves on itself. It has kind of anim- animal-like qualities. Even the Venus flytrap would shut. It had things like, like a teeth. So then we look into the animal realm and you have lower forms like, uh, gosh, uh, insects, uh, ant in your house, a spider. And then we go up the, the chain of being and we get into like a dog or, you know, little... Uh, Prince, um, Fluffy. Right. Yes. And then we get into like apes. And amongst the apes, my favorite is uh, chimpanzee. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think, most human-like. I, in the 70s, I watched this show on Saturday morning called Lance Link, The Secret Chimp. Oh, yeah. I do remember to, that. Yep. Uh, uh, dress up uh, chimpanzees like detectives and criminals and have them chew on something to... Look like they're talking. talking yes. Yeah. So they're very, very, like, very human-like. But then we get from apes to us, uh, the, the human person, man. And... Uh, there's a great leap there because we go from higher forms of animal life into uh, the human person where we know there's a difference because we can actually think, cogitate, be creative, which the, there's not evidence, as we know, from, from animal life that they can do that. But plus we know with the immortal soul we're able to, to uh, love. Uh, we can be creative. We can contemplate universals. But then if we go up, we, we're stopping. It seems like the ceiling of the great chain of being. Between us and God, there's a a vast, infinite distance. So Arthur Lovejoy then says, with philosophers before him, wouldn't it seem reasonable that there's some type of being that's higher than us than less than God? Right. And that is the popular imagination of angels, which is very important the way we understand that because now with superheroes, if we think about Superman and Spider-Man, that is though like a popular philosophical imagined way of understanding angels. Now, Bishop Sheen, the great Catholic bishop back in the 50s, pointed out, he said, as Christians, particularly Catholics, stopped believing in angels, super, superheroes started to take the, their place mm-hmm. in the common imagination. So I know there's been mythological beings throughout the centuries in Greek mythology and all alike, but just the very um, proliferation of superheroes in the movies and things shows that there's something that there's attractive to us, that there's persons like us but have greater powers than us. Right. So it's like opening our understanding or at least the possibility of these such uh, persons around us. And so we know those are properly understood are angels. Um, and that um, gets us to then what is an angel. Right. So just real quick, you're listening to Respect Life Radio. Our guest today is Father Gary Sellen, and we're talking angels and demons. And so we've kind of come to the point where it's rational, whether you have faith or not, to believe there is a being between us and God, which would be the angels. And then you were going to say? Yeah, so let's go back to the catechism and get solid doctrine now, because we know if one starts to sense that they're angels, a lot of superstition and bad uh, thinking and theology can get mixed in. I think we have a lot of interest in the angels now, but some of it's been influenced by New Age uh, ideology, and then it gets all kind of twisted. So the, the, the Catholic Church gives us a proper understanding. So go back to the catechism. The definition of the angel that's provided to us is a spiritual, personal, immortal creature. And I'll go through those three parts of that definition with intelligent and free will, who glorifies God without ceasing, and who serves God as a messenger of his saving plan. So in that, we have a little bit of everything, a small catechism. So first, uh, spiritual. What does it mean to be a spiritual creature? Well, it's to have, as we do, an intellect and a will, an intellect that we can know, we can contemplate, and a will to be able to love, to desire. But an angel has no body like we do. Uh, reminds me of, kind of on the humorous side, uh, the hit song in the 1950s by Cab Calloway. I dub it the theme song of the angels. Do you want to hear it? Sure. I ain't got no body. <laughs> so that's the uh, angelic philosophical uh, <laughs> uh, theme. It's kind of like name that tune, Father, right? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, so an, an angel does not need a body to exist or to operate. Now, in Scripture, they sometimes show up with a body, but like right. Aquinas says, they just 
will use or create a body just for a certain purpose. Right, but it's not how they were created to have that, right? Yes. And philosophically, we can define an angel as a mind without a body. Then uh, the catechism says personal, uh, angel is a personality. So that's good for us to understand that our, the angels, the good angels, and the demons too, have a personality. And our particular our guardian angel has a sense of humor. Uh, well, I know mine must. I keep him laughing all the time. <laughs> okay. Uh, he has great patience, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would agree. So that the angel has a – so sometimes we think about angels as, yeah, they are spirits, but not like an abstract cloud that's hovering around us. It's a person that's as colorful and lively and imaginative as we are, if not more, because they're confirmed in grace. Because sin here on this life tends to dull us. Right. Uh, but the more we come holy, the more we come alive, more human, and the angels, the good angels, are fully angelic. So spiritual, personal, and then immortal. That is, they had a beginning, but no end. So in addition to being spiritual, personal, and immortal, the catechism lists two tasks of the angels, to glorify God around the throne of God. Read that in the book of Revelation, for example, in Daniel. And number two, to be messengers of God in his saving plan. And so that messenger aspect it makes it really concrete for us. The word angel in the Greek means one who is sent. And we can say a, a, a messenger. Mm -hmm. And in Christian art, angels are shown traditionally with wings to show that they do God's will as messengers with promptitude. Uh, very quickly, they, they go from God to us and us back to God. St. Augustine says then the angel refers to their... Uh, office, what they do, but spirit refers to who they are. Right. Yeah. And then uh, it's good about limitations because now we're going to start talking about angels and demons in just uh, a short bit. From scripture and from the church and the saints tell us the angels do not know the secrets of God, even though they have the beatific vision, unless God, to the extent that God reveals it to them. Right. And they also do not know our secret thoughts unless God reveals it to them or unless we reveal it to them. Which is good, because otherwise the demons would know the same thing since they exactly. were angels and we'd be in trouble. Yes, and that's good for us to, to remember that uh, particularly the demons can be very ignorant about things. And they only know what God will reveal to them or what they can guess, and they're very good guessers. But for example, if we look at Herod, who was out to kill the baby Jesus, isn't it remarkable that Herod was giving himself over to evil, and the evil one was very involved with the slaughter of the innocents. But they still couldn't find where the child Jesus was. Uh, right. And there's okay. other examples in Scripture where the Lord blinds the evil one with regards to, say, for example, the temptation in the desert, which is this gospel for this Sunday. It's like Satan is trying to find out exactly what's Christ, who he is, is he, what's he made, is he the Messiah, is he God, or whatever. And it, God keeps him enough ignorance to, to draw him into the... Uh, to the great surprise on Calvary. Right. Uh, and the resurrection, where Satan's whole plan is turned upside down because he did he, uh, sin and pride blinded him. Yeah. So he, uh, the angels have no certain foreknowledge of the free actions of the future. Again, they depend upon God for what, uh, they, what they know. How many angels are there? Well, there are myriads and myriads, uh, such as uh, Hebrews 12.22, myriads, thousands and thousands. Uh, Daniel 7.10 or Revelation 5.11 or legions, uh, Matthew 26.53. So there's many, many angels. 
uh, much more than we can uh, think about. So, but when the angels were created, they were created. It's not like God continues to make angels, right? Exactly. There was one creative act in the beginning, and when those angels were were created, then what had happened uh, is he created them according to different classifications, according to their nature. So what's happened, developed uh, upon the uh, centuries of contemplation about uh, angels, that we come to the notion of the nine choirs. And this is found in the very early church. And it all is scriptural. All the nine choirs of angels are found in scripture. Not all together as nine, but Paul lists, I, th- I believe, six in Colossians. And then um, we add to that uh, cherubim and seraphim, which are found in other places. Right. And then our guardian angels, which are from the, the last or lowest choir. So in these nine choirs of angels, again, going, if we talk about uh, that great chain of being, we start with the lowest rank of angels from which our guardian angels come because they're most like us. Uh, and then as you go up to the nine choirs, you go through the different realms, you get to the very highest two, which is cherubim and seraphim. The seraphim are the, the most godlike, and they have fewer thoughts because a universal thought contains more. The guardian angels, the ones that are closest to us, meaning that they have less uh, of a universal power of, of thinking, they can understand us more because we have more cogitation and thinking going back. And so our garden angels are kind of created with us in mind and they're able to understand intuitively in a sense. They can relate. Yes, yes. Right. <clears throat> and so the bottom three choirs, uh, they are assigned to us for our salvation. Guardian angels are taken from uh, the ninth, the eighth, or the archangels. There are, in Catholic tradition, seven of them, but we only know the name of three. Right. Gabriel, Raphael, and uh, Michael, and they show up in various places in scriptures. And we only can pray to those three, because sometimes you see lists of other angels, and uh, the church has come in the past and say, don't use these names, because you don't know their genesis. You don't know if this is uh, a demon, demon name or just a creation of a... Right. Yeah. And then um, the... Generally, it's the virtues or the next one. Then the middle three, their role is to take care of the universe, the laws of the universe, the Big Bang, the the, the sun, and right. the, the nature around us. And the top three, namely the thrones, uh, cherubim and seraphim, their work is to glorify God, his pure adoration. And But the the other six choirs, they're adoring God first as well, but they have also have tasks in in the creation. So they've kind of a bit divided there. So when the demons decided not to worship God, what classes did they, what what levels did they come from? Do we know? Well, there is uh, some indications in Revelation 12. So Revelation 12, uh, following upon the great sign, which is Our Lady clothed in the sun, we read of the dragon. There's a big uh, battle in heaven, and the dragon fought against Michael and his angels. So there's a great war at the very moment of their creation. And the dragon has been interpreted as Lucifer, in a Catholic tradition, Lucifer, Satan, right? the highest of all angels. So he was the highest of the seraphim. So being the highest of all the angels, he had a, a, a very powerful influence over the lower angels to try to convince them to reject God and his plan and to follow him to become many gods which was a lie because they couldn't become gods. And so it said that Michael and his angels prevailed and the dragon swept one third of the stars with his tail from heaven. 
and stars in Catholic biblical tradition can refer to angels. So the fathers meditating upon this passion have taught that one-third of the angels who were created became demons. So that's probably millions, if not billions. So he had a pretty good influence. He did, Unfortunately. Yes. And that would have swept, to answer your question, that would have swept through all nine choirs. Okay. And the good news, though, is that two-thirds of the angels remained firm, so that there's twice as many good angels as there are demons. You add to that Our Lady, the saints, and God, the, the battles already won. Yeah, tipped in our favor. <laughs> yes. But then what happens then? The, 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 angel, the, the fallen demons are thrown to earth and into hell, as I said, Satan fell to earth, and their work now is to uh, get every human being to follow them into hell. And we know that means rejecting Jesus Christ for Catholics and his law, and to die in the state of mortal sin. Right. And that's why confession is so important if we, by our act, choices, turn our back on God, we have to come back to Jesus. But the, here's something very fascinating, though, and I came across this uh, commentary by Augustine on St. Luke. So St. Luke speaks about, about uh, he records what our Lord said about marriage. Will there be marriage in the afterlife? And Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, the saints, the blessed, will ne neither mar be married nor be given in marriage, but be, be like the angels. And St. Augustine then says, well, what that means is that if you look at that, those nine choirs, uh, one-third of which uh, angels vacated their place, there's these huge gaps, these big holes in the angelic hierarchy. So Satan probably, as he was falling down, was laughing to himself, well, at least I destroyed God's... Um, handiwork of the nine choirs because forever and ever there'll be these big voids voids so i have i have something to my credit well augustine says well um to become like the angels is that the saints will then occupy those places that were vacated by the fallen angels so that the beginning of mass when we pray the holy 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 the priest calls upon the the choirs it's not just beautiful poetry the reality is during the mass and for all eternity the saints and the angels will be intertwined, almost like DNA helix, a way in which we're going to be one with the angels of praise God. And our place in the choir of angels is determined by God and his plan, but concretely the amount of love that we die with, charity in our hearts at the moment of our death. So that's what makes us great in the kingdom of heaven is how much love do we love in this, in, in this life and how much love are we going to give to God. Right, and so you hear, you know, sometimes people, it makes them feel better if someone passes away and it's, you know, I now have an angel in heaven. They're like angels, but they're not, we're not, we're not going to become angels. They were already yes. created and we were created, right? Yes, yes. And angels are fixed. So, like, it's a wonderful life. You know, it's a popular, uh, right. the movie. Clarence is trying to get Every time the bell rings. Yes. Yes. Well, angels, uh, that's, that's, that's funny, but angels actually at the very moment are, are, are fixed, but they do understand. The thing about Clarence, maybe he's picking, on some, uh, picking up on the truth, is our angels, the good angels, particularly our angels, see God now in the beatific vision, so they know everything that they need to know and receive for their happiness. However, there's a way in which Aquinas speaks about an incidental or incremental uh, growth in knowledge. And here's an example I love to give. It comes from First Peter, I believe. It's, it speaks about, Peter's talking about uh, the mysteries of salvation being revealed in 
throughout time. And these are the mysteries in which the angels long to look. And in the Greek, that passage, long to look, and I checked with our biblical scholar at the seminary, it's the verb that's used in a spectators in a coliseum, on their feet, gazing down into an amphitheater. So let's say Broncos are four and one with two seconds left on the court. Everybody's on their feet looking down to see if the quarterback's going to run it in or running backward. That's the attitude of the good angels towards what's happening here and now. So I like to tell the men, because I teach the confession class here at the seminary, is every time we go to confession, we teach our guardian angels something about the mercy of God. Because angels have never, the good angels have never experienced mercy, only justice. Because they had one choice at the beginning of their creation, and they were given their just reward. Right. It's out of their experience to see someone like us to sin and then go back and be forgiven and then sin again. Uh, mercy for them is outside their experience, so they're absolutely fascinated and enthralled. So I like to tell the men, invite you and your penitents, invite the angels deeper into the mystery of confession where they can understand more about the mercy. And so they're, on, they're cheering us on, right? but they're also saying, this is absolutely fascinating how my person that I've been given to protect he comes and he receives mercy again, and he come back, and he's glorifying God, saying, this is just wonderful. <laughs> so there's a certain advantage we have. We can teach the angels by our good example. That's a great example, and it's hard to believe we only have about a minute and a half to go. But what else? What sh- how should we leave people in terms of how should they relate to their guardian angel? What, what should pray to them, but, I mean, really be aware that they're with us all the time, right? Yes, the friendship is very much involved and wrapped up in that prayer I prayed at the beginning, to light, to guard, to rule, and guide. So our guardian angel seeks a friendship. They are persons. They're, in many ways, our best friend. And they help us principally, by Aquinas teaches, by illuminating our mind to, to let us know what is true, what we must do uh, to, to get to heaven, basically and to, to speak, and they always want us to adore God, particularly when we receive Holy Communion, we invite our guardian angels even to adore the Eucharist within us. Well, that's why, I th- you know, whenever I serve at Mass, I always look out and I think, there's guardian angels for every single person here, and for those who don't come, the guardian angel doesn't get to come to Mass. Good point. And yes. so it's, uh, you know, you got twice the crowd there when you're, mm-hmm. when you're celebrating, when father celebrating mass but to sit there and think about that and to think how much god loves us to give us a personal protector and a messenger and a guardian to help lead us through this life to fight the bad demons that are that are there as well yes yes that's so true and the good news is with god's grace when we enter into heaven our angel will no longer be a guardian angel but they'll be a companion because their role of guardian is over and over at the moment of death. Well, thank you, Father. It's been fascinating. I can't believe 30 minutes went by that fast. Thanks again for coming. You're welcome. Thank you, Deacon.